Section 7 of Rameau's Nephew This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rameau's Nephew by Denis Diderot Translated by Ian C. Johnston Section 7 all the men pushing wood had left their chessboards and gathered around him. The windows of the café were filled up on the outside by passers-by who had been stopped by the sound. People gave bursts of laughter strong enough to break open the ceiling. But he didn't notice a thing. He continued, in the grip of some mental fit, of an enthusiasm so closely related to madness that it's uncertain whether he'll come out of it. It might be necessary to throw him into a cab and take him straight to the lunatic asylum. As he was singing snatches from Lamentations by Jomelli, he brought out the most beautiful parts of each piece with precision, truth, and an incredible warmth. That beautiful recitative in which the prophet describes the desolation of Jerusalem, he bathed in a flood of tears, which brought tears to everyone's eyes. Everything was there. The delicacy of the song the force of expression, the sorrow. He stressed those places where the composer had particularly demonstrated his great mastery. If he stopped the singing part, it was to take up the part of the instruments, which he left suddenly to return to the vocals, moving from one to the other in such a way as to maintain the connections and the overall unity, taking hold of our souls and keeping them suspended in the most unusual situation which I've ever experienced. Did I admire him? Oh, yes, I admired him. Was I touched with pity? I was touched with pity. But a tinge of ridicule was mixed in with these feelings, and spoiled them. But you would have burst out laughing at the way in which he imitated the different instruments. With his cheeks swollen, all puffed out, and with harsh, dark sounds, he delivered the horns and bassoons. For the oboes he produced a shrill nasal tone, and then accelerated his voice with an amazing speed for the stringed instruments, trying to find the best approximations for their sounds. He whistled for the piccolos, warbled for the flutes, shouting, singing, carrying on like a maniac, acting out by himself, the male and female dancers and singers, an entire orchestra, the whole musical company, dividing himself into twenty different roles, running, stopping, looking like a man possessed, frothing at the mouth. It was stiflingly hot, and the sweat running down the wrinkles in his forehead and down the length of his cheeks mixed in with the powder in his hair came down in streaks and lined the top of his coat. What didn't I see him do? He cried, he laughed, he sighed, he looked tender or calm or angry. A woman who is swooning in grief, an unhappy man left in total despair, a temple being built, birds calming down at sunset waters either murmuring in a cool, lonely place, or descending in a torrent from the high mountains, a storm, a tempest, the cries of those who are going to die intermingled with the whistling winds, the bursts of thunder, the night with its shadows, silent and dark, for sounds do depict even silence. His mind was completely gone, worn out with fatigue and looking like a man coming out of a deep sleep or a long trance. He stayed motionless, dazed, astonished. He directed his gaze around him, like someone disturbed who's trying to recognize where he is. 
He was waiting for his energy and his spirit to return. Mechanically he wiped his face, like someone who wakes up to see a large number of people surrounding his bed, totally forgetful of or profoundly ignorant about what's happened. He first cried out, Well done, gentlemen. What's going on? Why are you laughing? What's so surprising? What's happening? Then he added, Now that's what people should call music, and a musician. However, gentlemen, we should not deprecate certain pieces of Luli. I defy anyone to improve on the scene, ah, j'attendrai, without changing the words. We should not criticize some places in Compra, the violin pieces of my uncle, his gavotte, his entries for soldiers, priests, those carrying out the sacrifice. Pale torches, a night more frightening than shadows, god of Tartarus, god of oblivion. At that point, his voice grew loud. He sustained the sounds. The neighbors came to their windows, and we stuffed our fingers in our ears. He added, Here's where we need lungs, a great organ, plenty of air. But before long, it will be time to say yours sincerely goodbye to Assumption, Lent, and Epiphany. They still don't know what needs to be set to music, and thus what's appropriate for a composer. Lyric poetry has yet to be born. But they'll get there, by hearing Pergolesi, the Saxon, Teradoglius, Tresetta, and the rest. By reading Metastasio, they'll have to get there. Me. So, Quinal, Lamata, and Fontenelle didn't understand any of that? Him. Not for the new style. There aren't six consecutive lines in all their charming poems which can be set to music. There are ingenious sentences, light madrigals, tender and delicate, but if you want to see how that's a barren resource for our art, which is the most demanding of all, and I don't accept the art of Demosthenes, get someone to recite these pieces. You'll find them so cold, listless, and monotonous. There's nothing there which could serve as the basis for a melody. I'd sooner have La Rouge of Maxims, or Pascal's Pensee set to music. The cry of animal passion should dictate the line which suits us. The expressive passages must follow each other closely. The phrasing must be brief, the sense cut off, suspended, so the musician can use the whole piece and each of its parts, leaving out a word, or repeating it, adding a missing word, turning and returning it, like a polyp, without destroying it. All that makes French lyric poetry much harder than is the case with languages with inversions, which in themselves offer all these advantages. Cruel barbarian, plunge your dagger in my breast. Here I am, ready to receive the fatal blow. Strike, dare, oh, I faint, I die. A secret fire lights up my senses. Cruel love, what do you want with me? Leave me to the sweet peace I enjoyed. Give me my reason. The passions must be strong. The tenderness of the composer and the poet should be extreme. The aria is almost always the peroration for the scene. We have to have exclamations, interjections, suspensions, interruptions, affirmations, negations. We call, we invoke, we cry out, we groan, we cry, we laugh openly. No wit, no epigrams, none of these neatly crafted thoughts. That's too far from simple nature. And don't go on thinking that the role-playing of theatrical actors and their declamation can serve us as models. Bah! We need something more energetic, less mannered. More true. 
The straightforward language and common voice of passion are all the more necessary for us because our language is more monotonous and less stressed. The cry of an animal or a man in passion will provide them. While he was saying these things to me, the crowd which had surrounded us had moved away, either because they couldn't hear anything or were taking less interest in what he was saying. For in general, human beings, like children, prefer to be amused than to be instructed. They'd gone back, each to his game, and we remained alone in our corner. Seated on a bench with his head leaning against the wall, his arms hanging down, and his eyes half closed, he said to me, oh, I don't know what's the matter with me. When I came here, I was fresh and in good form. And now, here I am, beaten up and shattered, as if I'd hiked thirty miles. Something came over me all of a sudden. Me. Would you like some refreshment? Him. Yes, I'd like that. I feel hoarse. I haven't got any energy, and my chest hurts a bit. It happens to me almost every day, just like that. I've no idea why. Me. What would you like? Him. Whatever you like. I'm not hard to please. Poverty has taught me to adjust to everything. They served us some beer and lemonade. He fills a large glass and drains it two or three times, one after the other. Then, like a man with renewed energy, he coughs, moves around, and starts again. But in your view, my master philosopher, isn't it something really odd that a foreigner, an Italian, a Duni, should come to teach us how to use accents in our music, to adapt our melodies to all the movements, measures, intervals, all the forms of speech, without hurting our prosody? And yet it wasn't all that difficult to do, not like drinking the sea. Anyone who'd ever heard a beggar asking for a handout in the street, a man carried away by anger, a jealous and furious woman, a despairing lover, a flatterer, yes, a flatterer, softening his voice, drawing out his syllables in a voice like honey. In short, anyone who's ever heard passion of some sort or other, provided that its energy made it worthy of serving as a model for a composer, should have recognized two things. First, that the syllables, long or short, have no fixed length, not even a set relationship between their lengths. And second, that passion uses prosody almost as it likes. It can work across the greatest intervals. A man who cries out in the depths of his grief, Ah, oh, what an unhappy creature I am, lifts the opening syllable of exclamation to the highest and shrillest note and brings the others down to the most solemn and low notes, going through the octave or an even greater interval, giving to each sound the quantity which suits the turn of the melody, without offending the ear, and without either the long or the short syllables maintaining the length or brevity of normal speech. How far we've come since the time when we used to point to the parenthetical comments in our midi. The conqueror of Renard, if anyone can be. Or, obey, don't hesitate from in de galant, as amazing moments of musical expression. Right now, these amazing moments make me shrug my shoulders with pity. The way art is improving, I don't know where it'll end up. So, while we're waiting, let's have another drink. He had two or three more drinks, without knowing what he was doing. He was going to drown himself without realizing it, as if he was totally exhausted. If I hadn't moved the bottle, which he kept looking for absent-mindedly. Then I spoke to him. Me. 
how is it that with such fine discrimination and such a strong sensibility for the beauties of musical art you are also blind to the beautiful things in morality and equally insensible to the charms of virtue him oh i suppose it's because there's a sense for some things which i lack a fibre which i wasn't given a loose fibre which one can pluck firmly but which will not vibrate or perhaps it's because i've always lived among good musicians and bad people so that it's made my ear become very refined and my heart deaf and then there was something about heredity my father's blood and my uncle's blood are the same my blood is the same as my father's my paternal molecule was hard and stubborn and this damned first molecule has swallowed up the rest me do you love your child him do i love the little savage i'm crazy about him me are you seriously concerned about stopping the effects in him of this damned paternal molecule him oh, i've been working on it but without much effect i think if he's destined to become a good man i won't do him any injury but if the molecule wants him to become a scoundrel like his father the troubles i've taken to make him a decent man could be very harmful education would work against the tendency of the molecule and he'd be pulled apart as if by two opposing forces and would stagger all over the place along the road of life as i've seen in countless people equally awkward in doing good or bad those are the ones we call types which is the most frightening of all labels because it indicates mediocrity and the final degree of contempt a great scoundrel is a great scoundrel but he's not a type it would require an enormous length of time before the paternal molecule could reassert its mastery and take him to the state of perfect debasement where i am he'd lose his best years so i'm doing nothing about it at the moment i'll let him come along i'll keep my eye on him he is already greedy glib a lazy thief and a liar i'm afraid he's true to his heredity me why not make a musician of him so he'll be just like you him who a musician a musician sometimes i look at him and grind my teeth telling him if you ever learn a single note i believe i'll wring your neck me and why on earth would you do that him it doesn't lead to anything me it leads to everything him yes when one excels but who can promise himself that his child will excel the odds are ten thousand to one that he'll be nothing but an unhappy scraper of strings like me you know it would probably be easier to find a child suited to govern a kingdom to make a great king than one to make a great violin player me it seems to me that agreeable talents even mediocre ones among a people without morals lost in debauchery and luxury would enable a man to advance rapidly along the road to fortune i myself once heard the following conversation between some sort of patron and a kind of protege the latter had been recommended to the former as a pleasant man who could be of service to him sir what do you know i know mathematics passably well all right but after you've taught mathematics ten or twelve years you'll be covered with mud from the streets of paris and you'll be entitled to an income of between three and four hundred pounds i've studied our laws and i'm well versed in our legal system 
If Puffendorf and Grotius were to return to Earth, they'd die of hunger beside some road marker. I know a lot about history and geography. If there were parents who'd set their hearts on a good education for their children, your fortune would be made, but there are none. I am a competent musician. Well, why didn't you say so right away? Just to show you what you can gain from such a talent, I have a daughter. Come around every day between 7 and 7.30 in the evening until 9. You'll give her lessons, and I'll give you 25 louis per year. You'll have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with us. The rest of the day will belong to you. You can do with it whatever works to your benefit. Him. And what became of this man? Me. If he'd have been wise, he'd have made a fortune. Which is the only thing you seem to think about. Him. No doubt. Gold. Some gold. Gold is everything. And the rest, without gold, is nothing. So instead of cramming his head with fine maxims, which he'd have to forget or else be nothing but a beggar, whenever I have a louis, which isn't often, I stand in front of him. I pull the louis out of my pocket. I show it to him with admiration. I raise my eyes to the seedling. I kiss the louis right in front of him. And to make him understand even better the importance of this sacred coin, I stammer out the words. I point out to him with my finger everything one can acquire with this coin. A fine frock, a pretty hat, a tasty biscuit. Then I put the louis in my pocket. I walk around with pride. I lift up my coattails and strike my hand against my fob pocket to make him understand that it's the coin in there that gives rise to the self-assurance he sees in me. Me. One could do no better. What if it happens one day that, deeply impressed with the value of the louis, him, I see where you're going. One has to close one's eyes to that. There is no principle of morality which doesn't have some inconvenience. At the worst, one has a bad fifteen minutes, and then it's all over. Me. Even after such courageous and such wise opinions, I continue to think that it would be good to make him a musician. I don't know any way one can get close to important people so quickly, pander to their vices, and make a profit from one's own. Him. It's true, but I have plans for a faster and more assured success. Oh, if the child were only a daughter. But since we can't do what we want, we have to take what comes and get the best we can from that. And for that, one shouldn't be stupid, like most fathers who give a Spartan education to a child destined to live in Paris. They couldn't do any worse if they were intending to make their children unhappy. If education is poor, it's the fault of my country's customs. Not mine. Whoever's responsible, I want my son to be happy or, what amounts to the same thing, honored, rich, and powerful. I know a few of the easiest ways to arrive at this goal, and I'll teach him those early on. If you criticize me, you wise men, the mob and my child's success will absolve me. He'll have gold, I assure you. And if he has a lot of that, he won't like anything, not even your estimation and respect. Me. You could be wrong. Him. Well then, he'll go without, like plenty of other people. In everything he said, there were so many things one thinks about and acts upon, but which one does not say. And, to tell you the truth, that's the most remarkable difference between my man and most of those around us. He admitted the vices he had, 
which are those other men possess, but he wasn't a hypocrite. He was neither more nor less abominable than they were. He was only more candid, more consistent, and sometimes more profound in his depravity. I trembled to think what his child would become with a teacher like him. It's certain that after educational ideas so strictly tailored to our morality, he would go far, unless he was prematurely stopped along the way. Him. Oh, come now, you needn't be afraid. The important point, the difficult point, which a father has to attend to above all, is not so much to give his child vices that will make him wealthy, or foolish behavior that will make him valuable to great people. Everyone does that, if not systematically, as I do, at least by example and in lessons. But to give him a sense of proportion, the art of dodging shame, dishonor, and the law. Those are dissonances in the social harmony which he must know how to set up, prepare, and resolve. Nothing is so insipid as a sequence of perfect chords. There has to be something which acts as a spur, which breaks up the light and scatters its rays. Me. That's very good. With this comparison you bring me back from morality to music, which I'd strayed from in spite of myself. I thank you for that, for... To be perfectly frank with you, I like you better as a musician than as a moralist. Him. But I'm very second-rate in music, and much better as a moralist. Me. I doubt it. But even if it were true, I'm a good man, and your principles are not the same as mine. Him. So much the worse for you. Ah, uh -huh. if I only had your talents... Me. Leave my talents out of it. Let's get back to yours. Him. If only I knew how to express myself like you. But my way of speaking is such a devilish mixture. Half from the people of the literary world, half from the street market. Me. I speak badly. I only know how to speak the truth. And that's not always welcome, as you know. Him. But I envy your talent, not because I want to speak the truth, but in order to tell lies well. If I could write, do up a book, turn out a dedicatory epistle, intoxicate a fool with his own merit, insinuate myself close to women. Me. In all that, you're a thousand times more capable than I am. I wouldn't even be worthy to be your pupil. Him. How many great qualities wasted, and you aren't even aware of their value. Me. I collect back everything I put into them. Him. If that were the case, you wouldn't have this coarse coat, this muslin vest, these wool socks, these thick shoes, and this ancient wig. Me. I agree. One must be very inept if one is not rich, after stopping at nothing to become wealthy. But the fact is, there are people like me who do not consider riches the most precious thing in the world. Strange people. Him. Very odd. We aren't born with this frame of mind. One has to acquire it, because it's not natural. Me. Not natural to men? Him. No. Not to men. Everything living, including human beings, seeks benefits for itself at the expense of whoever they belong to. 
and I'm sure that if I left the little savage to go his own way, without speaking to him about anything, he'd want to be richly clothed, splendidly fed, liked by men and adored by women, and would like to gather round him all the fine things of life. Me. If the little savage were left to himself so that he retained all his imbecility, uniting the little reason possessed by a child in the cradle with the passionate violence in a man thirty years old, he'd wring his father's neck and sleep with his mother. Him. That proves the need for a good education. Who'll argue about that? And what's a fine education, if not one which leads to all sorts of pleasures, without danger and without inconvenience? Me. I almost share your opinion, but let's not explore that. Him. Why not? Me. Well, I'm afraid we may only appear to agree, and if we once enter into a discussion of the dangers and the difficulties which need to be avoided, we won't agree any more. Him. And what's the problem with that? Me. Let's leave it, I'm telling you. For I know I could never teach you about these things, and it's much easier for you to teach me about music, things I don't understand and you do. Dear Rameau, let's talk music. Tell me how it comes about that with your ability to feel, to remember and deliver the finest passages of the Grand Masters with enthusiasm which inspires you and which you transmit to others, you've done nothing worth anything. Instead of answering me, he began to shake his head. Then, raising his finger to the sky, he added, The star, my star. When nature made Leo, Vinci, Pergolesi, and Duny, she smiled. She assumed an imposing and serious expression when she formed my dear uncle Rameau, whom people will call the great Rameau for ten years and then, in a little while, won't mention any more. When nature did up his nephew, she made grimace after grimace, and then grimaced again. While he uttered these words, he made all sorts of faces, disgust, disdain, irony, and he seemed to be kneading in his fingers a piece of dough and smiling at the ridiculous shapes he made with it. This done, he threw the misshapen idol far away from him and said, That's how nature made me, and threw me away, alongside other idols, some with shriveled stomachs, short necks, huge eyes outside their heads, apoplectic, mothers with wry necks, wizened, with a vibrant eye and a hooked nose. All of them started to laugh when they saw me. And I put my two fists against my sides and exploded with laughter when I saw them. For fools and madmen amuse each other. They seek each other out. They attract each other. If, on my arrival here, I hadn't found ready-made the proverb which says, A fool's money is the inheritance of a man with brains, I'd have invented it. I felt that nature had put what was legitimately mine into the safekeeping of these idols. So I devised thousands of ways of getting it back for myself. End of section 7